What's good? This is the We Be Imagining podcast. This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. I'm the director of We Be Imagining at the American Assembly and Insight Center at Columbia University. Today is Thursday, March 18th, 2021. It's 2.36 Eastern Standard Time. And I'm here today with Eleanor Carmi, who is a postdoc researcher, research associate in, in digital culture and society at the Communication and Media Department at Liverpool University in the UK. She's also the author of Media Distortions, Understanding the Power Behind Spam, Noise, and Other Deviant Media. Thank you so much for joining the show today, Eleanor. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this was like a good Twitter synergy because that's where I first encountered your article on the organic myth, which, which before getting into that, I wanted to just give you an opportunity if you'd like to say a little bit more about yourself and your work beyond the kind of formal bio. So, um, as you said, my name is Eleanor Carmi. Um, I'm working on several projects at the moment around data literacies. Uh, so one of them is called Mean My Big Data, Developing Citizens Data Literacies, which is a Newfield Foundation project, funded project. Uh, the other one is Developing Fake News Immunity, which is a UKRI-funded project where we sort of develop um, a chatbot to help people become their own fact-checkers. I'm also working with the UK Parliament, so the DCMS committee, in order to try to uh, understand sort of what are the current challenges in digital literacies and help uh, my final report sort of feed into uh, the online safety bill, which is supposed to be uh, sort of finalized as soon. So... Uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff around data literacies, and I think that my book, which came out exactly a year ago, minus one day, um, is very much related because that was sort of dealing with what's happening in the back end of our screens and the politics of that. And I think that sort of my my career um, development into more like data literacies is a, is a is a clear transition into trying to figure out what do we do with that. No, thank you so much. It's funny in the like a distorted rubric of the uh, c computer science meritocracy, I feel like pedagogic uh, interventions are kind of devalued and thought of like as not the real work. But we definitely see, in particular, with social media, that there's just this desperate need for digital literacy. Because, like you said, a lot of people. I mean, on one level, it's ubiquitous. But people's understanding is very much like shaped by the immediate end user experience and the like infrastructures and kind of layers of decision making have been so invisibilized. And I just I can't believe time really flies one, you know, kudos to everybody who dropped the book right at the start of the shelter in place order in the beginning of like the new pandemic reality. That's real. Although I will definitely link your your site in the show notes. And I appreciate that the book is open access. Um, and has a I, special playlist together with it. Uh, so I maybe should also mention that I, I have a background. I used to work in the music industry. Uh, so I used to work as a radio broadcaster for almost a decade, uh, playing uh, psychedelic trance and electronic dance music. I used to work for music labels. I used to edit television channels. So, you know, what we're going to talk about today is basically the book and sort of how I developed a power theory through sound concepts. So I think the background of me, you know, being in the music industry is quite paramount to that because... I think through music and I feel through music. And so, you know, the playlist was a, a huge part of that. And I think that every book should come out with a playlist, to be honest. 
I agree. I, do, I did see Catherine McKittrick's Dear Science book also came with a, a, a playlist on Spotify. So it seems like there's a, a burgeoning trend. Um, and I also appreciate your insight with the background in media because we, through We Be Imagining, we have a project with Black Science Radio called Remix the Scholar. And I use turntables to edit both like my favorite Black scholars talks and then mix it with layers of like archival audio and music. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that typically to edit the podcast, I use Adobe Audition. Um, And it has like certain kinds of affordances. It's very good at like clipping vocals in particular, like spoken word, not singing. Uh, but then I was using uh, Recordbox, which is the, the software that comes with the turntables. And when you're editing a talk that way, it just makes you interact with the sound differently. And so that's what it really appealed to me is that you're not just thinking about, okay, what does content moderation mean for Clubhouse or for YouTube, like these different modes of knowledge production, but how do you actually listen to text and as like flows of information are passing through social media? And I think exactly what you're talking about is these kind of the amount of layers that you add up and what's the politics behind that is what interests me the most. And I think this is sort of one of the the power and the sort of the 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 usefulness of using sound related concepts is that it attends to much more of this, you know, multiple layers that we engage with and online ecosystems. Um, so I will definitely listen to your remixing. It sounds amazing. And I'm really happy that you're also sort of um, into an appreciating sound and all of its, uh, all of its uh, usefulness. Well, it's funny. I feel like everybody likes to critique the like unidirectional lecture model of the Zoom webinar, but I'm like, life not need, need not be this bad. I mean, we can also have joy. We can have like sonic resonance. We can have beach dropping. Like, why can't rhythm be the like sign of epistemic authority? Why is it always text? Um, I but agree. I wanted to ask you this question. I, I want to just like cite a quote from your your piece, The Organic Myth, and have you kind of elaborate a little bit on it yeah. because it really, really resonated with me. And it says, in other words, platforms don't just moderate or filter content. They alter what registers to us and our social groups as social or as experience. Their design influences behavioral patterns across different conversations, groups, and geographical areas with different frequency and paces. Given these orchestrated reorganizings, it may be better to think of how feeds are ordered, not as organic and inorganic, but in terms of their rhythm, or as you call it, rhythm media. And I would love if you could kind of expound on this, because on one level, we're all uh, surrounded and living in the world that Facebook has produced in a way in their recommendation algorithm for genocide. And on the flip side, we're also inundated now with all these essays about why Facebook is trash, basically. Um, And here you have yet another article that's like examining kind of the same sites, but bringing in new insights. So if you could kind of elaborate on that and that quote. Uh, So thank you very much. I also want to add that this was uh, a piece that is basically an elaboration of the stuff that I talk about in my book. Um, But I think particularly what was interesting for me is that I think a lot of the debate that's happening right now, especially in policy, both in the US, when you talk about content moderation, also the online safety bill in the UK, but also in the European level, most of the attention focuses on content. 
And I want to say, especially with this article, is that actually it's not only about content. It is actually content is not the the main concern. The main concern is the way that algorithms through different types of processes arrange different kind of architectures that restricts or enable specific actions. And by doing so, they shape how we understand ourselves and what is sociality and what is anti-sociality. So for me, one of the main things is that most people and definitely the people that I work with, you know, in the in the literacy projects that I'm working on, I'm working with people who are sort of uh, come from poorer backgrounds, uh, so sort of lower socioeconomic um, status, but also, you know, less uh, educated, but, you know, adults, so like people like 30 and above. Um, the majority of them do not know that algorithms, you know, are influenced by different kind of things. And they think that this is objective and, you know, that if you search for something on Google search or if you see some kind of things on, on Facebook, then this is how things are. And I think this is quite dangerous because when people don't understand that there are economic sort of motives behind that, then, you know, they can't really understand the kind of the manipulations that are done on, on their actions. Um, so for me, one of the, the main issues and one of the main things that I wanted to emphasize with that article is, first of all, to show, you know, what, what are they actually doing with the algorithms, right? Like, what, what are the incentives that are uh, motivating them? Um, how they're changing our behavior, how they're changing our sense of time. Um, so, for example, also in my book, I emphasize how different features have been developed by Facebook in order to encourage us to engage more, including the, you know, the memories which they're surfacing or, you know, the the whole, you know, promoting different kind of, uh, the, promoting the, the newsfeed according to popularity, everything that basically is meant to make us uh, contribute more information or engage more. That also includes uh, the, the audience selector and different kind of things. Um, so what I'm showing is that, you know, there is a labyrinth and multiple layers that are involved, you know, behind what we're seeing with these kind of the slick interfaces that these platforms, you know, show us. And when I say that, it's not only Facebook, as I said, it's Google, it's also Amazon, and it's also other platforms. But it has, you know, deep consequences on how we understand ourselves, how we engage with others, um, and different kind of things. Now, I think for me, what's really interesting, what I'm seeing with my data literacies project is that in all of the interviews that we talk with people, we ask them, you know, how often do you post things? And actually, 99% of the people that we talk with uh, say that they actually don't post anything. So they sort of, they, they engage with different kind of things, but they don't post things. So that leaves very specific people who are posting on these platforms and are leveraging on, you know, on the, the affordances of these kind of the, the algorithms. So I think the main, the main point of that article and, and I think the main point, hopefully, of, of my book is, is to sort of the, to demystify the, the kind of the notion that um, these uh, architectures are neutral or objective. But also for me, you know, as a media scholar, 
we've always been told, you know, oh, you know, this like uh, you have all of the um, uh, algorithms, but also different kind of uh, Internet standards and different kind of things that we're being told, oh, you know, only computer scientists really understand that, you know, it's machine learning you're not going to understand. And I think it's really important for us from different disciplines, especially social social sciences, but also humanities, to actually engage with these, you know, texts or or different kind of standards and analyze them critically and show how power is embedded in them. So for me, it's about sort of peeling off the layers of power, how power is constructed within these kind of architectures that are meant to present to us as neutral. And I'm saying that both in terms of, uh, of internet standards, but also in terms of uh, legal texts. And this is something that I've been doing both in this research project, but also in the previous research projects that I was doing, what I really like to do in my projects is to sort of peel these discourses of truth, right? That we're being told, oh, you know, this is the law, so it's objective, but actually peeling off the layers and showing, well, actually, no, it's been, you know, this is a battleground of lobbyists and of a lot of powerful institutions and people who want to influence how we understand reality. No, thank you. That's really helpful. I mean, I think that the the key is this demystification. Um, and as as you as you were talking, I was also laughing because a lot of people, uh, even though I'm constantly around and embedded in academia, for a lot of people, they do not know that I am a college dropout. And actually, until recently, um, actually the start of COVID, I think I was. I mean, I I think I was poor. Um, and what I think is fascinating to me is that so much of the conversation around platform governance feels like some kind of faltering, Rawlsian notion of fairness in the face of like fascistic speech. But it's very much I've been thinking about like what is an abolitionist approach to platform governance, because the current conversation seems so hyper focused on identifying bad behavior, bad content, bad actors, figuring out how to identify them and, and get rid of them but there's not a lot of thought to kind of platform governance in terms of like an ecosystem and like, how do we create and contest infrastructural affordances that allow for like jovial interaction that do um, kind of question the modes of power that are reproduced onto the digital. So it's just, it's, it's interesting because I feel like it's so shaped by people's positionality. I really appreciated your your chapter number five, engineering the antisocial. And like in thinking about filtering, the filtering both happens in terms of the features of the software and as well as the like filtering that happens as people curate the relational. Because even when you were, I'm not really on Facebook anymore, um, but when I'm thinking about Facebook and even to a degree Twitter, so much happens in the in the DMs, down in the DMs. Um, and so, so much of it is this like relational curation, like what is the thing is not just like the, the way disinformation is scaled, but what are the relationships people have to the authors of it? Do they trust this source? Do they de de deem it a credible messenger? How is like legitimacy transferred, um, onto the people who create these posts? Exactly. And I think like there's so much that we are not aware of because of these kind of multiple layers. So, for example, one of the one of the uh, main concepts that I've been using is process listening. And what I say is that, you know, people are listening or organizations are listening in different ways. So I argue that there is this kind of hierarchy of of listening 
um, rather than hierarchy of viewing or of, of seeing, which is something that Michel Foucault is talking about with the panopticon, I'm arguing that the more listening capacity you have, so for example, Facebook has a lot of listening capacities. It could listen to me. It could listen to a lot of organization, but they listen to me across multiple spaces, right? But they also give people different kind of listening capacities in, or, in order to normalize different kind of surveillance practices, right? Like if I want to look to, to listen to your profile, so I would go to your profile, but they don't give you an indication that I'm looking at your profile, right? So we have different kind of layers. Some actions are, are we get this different kind of signals that they exist to us, but others are given to advertisers. So for example, how many times I visit on a page, uh, how many times I engage with different kind of things in order to create that online market. But what I'm really interested in, and, and this is what you just said, what what is sort of how do we talk about these these options and and how do we how do we think and move forward and this is something that I'm I'm sort of developing further uh, in an article that I'm writing right now which is sort of a feminist critique of digital consent and this is something that I talk a bit of in the book because you know we have all of these consent mechanisms right I don't know if in the I think in the US maybe a bit less but here in the European a lot Union. Less. Yeah, so here in the European Union, you're given the control and the power to consent, which is basically a bullshit mechanism that is meant to, you know, to legitimize and normalize the kind of the practices that are happening. And I think that, you know, the more that you investigate what these companies do, I think it's quite astonishing and quite crazy on, you know, on any level that you think. And so... I find a lot of the debates now, I don't know how you think about it, but all of this kind of uh, AI ethics and all of these ethics board and everybody's like, let's create more ethics committees and blah, blah, blah. And I think that this is just a way to continue to normalize the way that these companies are acting because ethics committees are not doing anything. And what I show in the book is actually that the process that digital advertising associations did before ethics, before it was called ethics. So in the beginning of the 2000s, the way they called it was these kind of different standards and guidelines. So what they did was like, oh, we have this new online economy. We're moving our business model from subscription to free uh, content by, you know, spying on us and trading us online through real-time bidding. But what we're going to do, because we don't want to be regulated, we're going to develop all of these recommendations and all of these standards that, you know, that we as an industry, as a digital advertising industry are going to do. Okay, and that was a way for them to sort of legitimize, to, pro to give themselves a license to act in these ways, right? And at the end of the day, all of these agreements, all of the standards that they wrote, all of the recommendations that they wrote, they did not respect them. Now, with ethics, what we're seeing right now is the exact same strategy. What all, of, you know, Facebook with the, the oversight board and Google with ethics, which they now fired all of that team. And I don't know what they're going to do now. But all of these attempts to create in-house ethics committees have shown and proven to be a failure because this is not the way that you deal with an exploitative online market that's gone wild.
right? So to me, the, the way that we talk about this today and all of the regulations that are being proposed, both in the US, you know, all of the antitrust, you know, legislation, none of them actually deal with the, the core issue here. And none of them is going to solve that. So, you know, I think that we really need to radically change how we talk about that. I think that what Shoshana Zuboff did with her book about surveillance capitalism is great. It's, it's a step forward, but legally wise, you know, in the legal and sort of the regulation realm, we don't have a lot of instruments as citizens to actually curb their behavior. We're very much the kind of the legal instruments that we have both in terms of laws, but also in terms of enforcements are very, very limited. And this concerns me. And I think that, you know, at the moment, all of the legal instruments, both in the European Union with the DCA and all of these things, none of them actually deals with the core of the issue. You know, what they do, oh, we're going to give them a fine of, I don't know, like a few million dollars slash pounds slash euros, which they can basically cover within an hour of operation, right? So I think that the still the, you know, Shashan Zubev helped us have better vocabularies. I think also feminists already had these vocabularies. Um, and, you know, people from race studies as well also ha already had these, you know, extractivist vocabularies. But at the moment, we don't have, as a society, the proper instruments to sort of fight all of these big tech companies. Well, also, I think all of those fields are so highly fragmented. And so you mentioned earlier, you used the term architecture. And yeah. I was also thinking about, I don't know if you've ever, I might have uh, DM'd you about this a long time ago, but I love the book, um, The Architecture of Sounds by Mike, Michael Fowler. Um, no, it's I'll check it out. specifically... Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, it's not specifically geared to text. It's like literally thinking about how buildings produce sound and mediate sound. And um, the reason why that I bring that up is that I think for the for the lay public, you know, who really is understanding tech either A, through their experiences like end users or B, through kind of New Yorker, Atlantic essays that are kind of translating the issue to them. Yeah. So much of this is invisibilized. And so like the antitrust, the like conversation on corporate diversity and toxic work, corporate work culture to me is also a byproduct of people not understanding how these technologies actually work and what they represent. I mean, surveillance capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff is an interesting example because it's also like contentious, right? Like I think so many people from outside of the field that like gave them a phrase that felt like totalizing that at least on some level resonated with the effective sense that something big is happening. There's something changing and it's not as academic as saying something like techno capitalism or whatever. Um, but on the flip side, you know, reading her massive tome, I think it's also challenging because for example, Africa is mentioned like kind of in passing as a, as a passive site of um, surveillance as service. And, you know, there's a, there's a degree to which it feels like, you know, the problem is the, is the problem ultimately with Silicon Valley, just a regulation, like ultimately what were the power dynamics even beholden within, within that. Um, and I was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about what are these architectures that you're able to listen to, to elicit through the listening process listening. Yeah. 
Well, first of all, I completely agree. I, I think that the book, not that I managed to actually read all of the all of her book, I think her book provides, you know, an entry point to people who don't understand that. But what I, I know from a lot of the criticism is that basically she mainly focuses as if everything started with Google. And actually, a lot of the sort of the surveillance practices that we're talking about now have started much earlier. And actually, in, in the third chapter of my book, I talk about Bell Telephone Company um, as, you know, uh, one of the biggest media uh, monopolies in the world uh, and in the early 20th century. And I talk about a specific case in New York City where they joined the city and different kind of stakeholder uh, that wanted to change the fabric of the city. So what they did was to develop different kind of mechanisms to measure the sound of people's behavior and to categorize specific behavior as noisy. And the people who are categorized as noisy were, you know, African-American and different kind of foreigners, including Jews and everybody that was basically doing things that, you know, they didn't approve uh, and they wanted to sort of to to take out of the city. And that was a moment where they wanted to revolutionize how New York City was built and to make it more commercially friendly. So I really like the way that you talk about architecture because architecture is extremely important. And I think a lot of the things that we're, we're sort of witnessing now is early, you know, it, it's a way to restructure how society can function. But that happened, um, you know, much before. And, and what, I, what I showed there is basically how New York City collaborated with Bell Telephone, with real estate agents and uh, different kind of uh, other stakeholders in order to bring, uh, you know, first of all, to bring more cars into the city, to forbid different kind of people to sell things on the street without permits, uh, to uh, give a more room to different kind of huge shopping centers and different kind of things. And in a way, the, these very similar practices were later conducted by these kind of these big tech companies where we're seeing less and less sort of public free spaces and the more commercialization of, of different kind of both, uh, you know, public spaces, but also human interaction. And so what Bell did in the early 20th century was to uh, control and shape how we understand human relation through sound and noise. And what we're seeing now with different kind of big technology companies is where they shape how we understand um different kind of relation through sociality and antisociality. And so I'm seeing a lot of what I'm showing in the book is basically these kind of uh, similarities of trying to shape the architectures where we live, basically, and where we conduct, you know, our relationships with different kind of people. One of the things I found really compelling about the book is the focus on spam, uh, because... Yeah. Uh, you know, when we're thinking about producing content, so like we think about our behavior to evade the spam and the spam calls that we're receiving. But uh, I never thought about it until reading your book, but it's not typically a site of analysis and study. And so in thinking about architecture, demographic restructuring, I also think about Achille Mbembe's notion of necropolitics and kind of the limitation. You point out the limitations of Foucault's analysis at, for its reliance on cited uh, metaphors with the panopticon. 
But he's also saying there's this limitation to biopower and this transition to a necropolitic and managing the production of death as a form of social control. And so I'm curious about what you see as the connection between kind of these disposed of sections of society and these disposed of sections of media content. Thank you for this question. It's a really great question. I think like for me, um, the focus on spam came from the realization that we have very little understanding what is spam. So when I was starting to investigate what it actually means, you know, everybody was said, oh, you know, this is just like the uh, emails that you get for Viagra or, or different kind of things like that. But actually, when I started to investigate a bit further, I realized that there's actually, as I said before, huge battleground of trying to dictate, you know, how we understand what is, you know, deviant media behaviors and what is not deviant media behaviors. And so, you know, this kind of distinction, and I think maybe it's because I, you know, I, I used to be <laughs> in the gothic scene. I was always very attracted to uh, dark behaviors and sort of forbidden behaviors. Um, my previous book, which is about the Israeli psychedelic trans culture, um, is I think also quite similar because there I was trying to examine how did this culture was, you know, categorized as deviant? Why, why is it different from other culture? And what were the procedures that made, you know, this is the norm and this is the deviant? And so I'm always interested in, in you know, these kind of procedure. What, what exactly, when exactly are those moments in time? Who are the organizations involved in creating this, you know, artificial line be between this is okay and this is not okay. This is social and this is antisocial. And at the moment, because so many of our behaviors are, um, you know, are uh, digitally mediated, um, these kind of distinctions are many times decided for us and not by us. And that is a huge problem. So we're seeing that obviously with, you know, content moderation where different kind of um, companies decide what is forbidden within their spaces. But a lot of the times, you know, what they decide is forbidden or not only forbidden, but also maybe does not get a recognition. So that could have be, you know, in the past, you couldn't indicate if you're you know, have a different type of gender or different kind of actions, that means that how we can engage with other people is very limited. So even just think about a very basic thing that at the moment we only can, you know, on Facebook supposedly identify ourselves according to our original names. And also each profile is associated supposedly with one person. It's supposedly not meant to be shared. It cannot be a collective user used by other people. And I can definitely say, you know, we have... Um, uh, in our department, a, uh, a Twitter account where all of us have a password to it, but all the time, because we all use it, you know, from different locations, there is an email all the time that is sent in order to verify that it is us. So there are a lot of restrictions over what we can do. And in turn, that sort of influences what we can imagine, what we can demand and what we can, you know, what we can actually do with others on these platforms. And this is why I think it's quite uh, dangerous the way that these platforms are restricting, restricting our behaviors and the way that 
you know, the current sort of main paradigm, the main ideology is that we have to engage in personalized uh, environments, right? All of the algorithms at the moment, the way that we are told that we need to experience these environments are according to personalization. Um, And, you know, if you want to experience these platform in a different way, you simply cannot. And this is quite dangerous because it means it what it tells us is that you can experience us only in one way. And this is the only way. And so in a way it narrows and limits our capacities to think and imagine in, in different ways, right? It it's it sort of individualizes us um into very specific and very consumery sort of behaviors. So I think for me, one of the main things that I wanted to emphasize and, and one of the powers of peeling off all the all the, the sort of the power structures that are structuring specific architectures is saying, actually, because this was structured like this, it means that it could also be structured in other ways. And we should demand the other ways because at the moment we only have one way. And that is very limiting for us. So I think the book for me um, is a call for action as well. And also a call for, you know, thinking about these things um, in a different way uh, and saying, well, actually, things can always be different. This doesn't have to be like that. And actually, all of the the big tech companies that we're talking about, they're quite, you know, in the media history kind of perspective, they're quite new what, there have been like two decades? It's not that much in in respect to like a lot of other technologies that are existing. So in a way, they're still sort of shaping and sort of cementing their their position in society. And so I know that a lot of people think, oh, you know, this is like a gone battle. But actually, it's not a lost battle because they're only in the beginning. So I think that as a society, we have a... Uh, a responsibility and also an opportunity to maybe have things in a different way. But as you said, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, people, more people need to understand um, what is happening. And uh, I think a lot of people are trying. There are different kind of... Can I ask you? Yeah. Sorry sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to ask you one point of clarification is that... In the beginning, when you were talking about spam, you gave the example of like Viagra emails. Yeah. And so it's interesting also to think about like how kind of marginalized or dissenting opinions might be labeled as spam. I think we often thinking think of them as like activists being labeled erroneously as hate speech, like the example of when uh, so much of content moderation became automated at the beginning of the pandemic. And Sarah Roberts wrote a great art, a great piece about that around that time and the anti the anti-nazis getting deplatformed because they were labeled as nazis um but at the same time when i think of spam and i'm like endlessly getting you know this is the irs calling you this is the car company calling you yeah um i think about it a lot as like commercial created noise and so how do you make this distinction between that which is a product of social control and like the disallowing of deviant opinions and that which is like the very same industry pumping at us like tons of garbage content. I think a lot of them are, are quite the same. So actually, you know, one of the, one of the things that I'm arguing is that spam and web cookies 
are the same thing, but one is legitimized as like a thing that is part of the online economy, which is legitimate and okay. And the other one is considered to be as annoying and, you know, unacceptable. But actually, if we think about it, cookies are also unacceptable and cookies are also exploitative and cookies are also harming us. So, you know, both of them are the same thing. So I guess it's just about how you frame that and how society talks about different kinds of things. So to me, I don't I don't put a morality or a tag of what is, you know, what is the deviant and what is not. And then try to to understand these kind of phenomena, these kind of practices, what what differentiates them. So I agree with you. Like if somebody calls you or whatever, that could be annoying, but also when uh, politicians call you before election, that also annoys you, right? But that's like legal and, you know, that is not legal. The other thing is not legal. So these kind of distinctions and how they're being made and by who uh, and what do they mean is, is what interests me the most. Well, it's also kind of the automated aspect of that. I mean, I would, I have now, I have uh, like malware software on all of my devices. And so I think the politician would be blocked too, because part of it is they, I have no relationship to them. The difference is if I have a relational connection to the sender, I think that's part of the, the distinction. But I think like with web cookies, what we find is that we have relations with different kind of entities and organizations that we don't even know about, right? Like we're being sent if if it's third party cookie or first party cookie, or if you have pixels or if you have fingerprinting and you discover apparently, you know, if you have, um, I don't know if you have privacy badger, which is an EFF uh, sort of ad blocker device. And if you actually go into it and look at all of the companies that are listening to your behavior, you discover that all of a sudden you apparently have a relationship with a lot, dozens, if not hundreds of companies that you're actually not aware of. But the power of that is that all of these relationships, it's not as distinct, it's not as as overt as calling you, right? A lot of it is silent. And with this silent comes power because as we said, we, we actually don't know that we're being listened to, right? I don't know that at this moment, if I'm gonna go on Facebook, they are going to listen to my behavior across different kind of platforms, but also a lot of other organizations. So in this way, this kind of the nuance, we, we can't we can't understand uh, what ha- what's happening to us. I think it's much easier to to detect that when you get that annoying email, when somebody annoying calls you. Right. You can identify and say, hey, you're you're annoying. So I don't want this this communication anymore. But when this communication is done covertly and in a spying kind of way, we can't even object to that, right? Because I don't even know that it's happening. And this is a result, as I show in my book, of lobbying of the digital advertising industry to say, you know, in the past, in the in the beginning of 2000s, actually in the standard, the cookie standards, the, the people who developed it, uh, some people say, oh, maybe we should actually show people on the browser that, you know, that all of these cookies are happening in the back end. But then the digital advertising industry said, no, 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 it's going to confuse people. We don't confuse them. And then what we got is these kind of slick interfaces that hide what's happening in the back end. So our screens are basically uh, sort of create this kind of power uh, uh, screen 
where, you know, in the front end where we experience it, everything happens in the pace that we're used to. But in the back end, there is a whole insane market, online market that is happening within milliseconds of real time bidding uh, and hundreds of companies that we're not aware of. So I think what we're talking about, the, the politics here is what you say about automation. Exactly. It's exactly that, right? Like behind the screen, there's a whole automated market that we're just not aware of. And it's basically running without any type of regulation at the moment. Yeah. So that's interesting. Like to think about the surveillance as placing you constantly in relationship with organ- with other organizations without your consent and covertly in the sense that it's silent. Um on a kind of separate topic, one of the things that was really compelling in thinking about sound is that I was thinking in the moment where I encountered your article in Real Life Magazine, and then I started reading your book, that was kind of in a moment where I was thinking really heavily about uh, Ethiopia. And what I appreciate is I've been thinking a lot about how social media is not just the site at which speech happens. And I felt like that you captured that so well. And I was thinking about Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, of Ethiopia declared war on Facebook uh, and then on Twitter. And then he most recently re- released his uh, Medemer sequel, which is um, a new book that in English it translates roughly to unity. It's kind of a nod to making Ethiopia great again. And in that moment, I was thinking about how text is this valorized form of knowledge predict- production, but resistance is often sung. And in the Ethiopia example, part of the initial timeline to the current political situation was the assassination of Hachalu Hundessa, who's credited with developing the Saromo resistance soundtrack. And I'm wondering, kind of with your background and thinking about as an Israeli and also like your academic work on the Israeli like trans, uh, trans music scene, um, how do you think about rhythm and digital ecosystems as it relates to Palestine? Like, what does it mean to listen to those resisting occupation, a misdesign as well represented in media, like what is this tension between text and sound and also like listening to all these forums on social media? It's a really good question. Um, I think that one of the main things is that a lot of Israelis are actually not aware, right? Because I don't know if it's only because they're not listening, but also because there is I guess a, a huge screen of, you know, that the mainstream media in Israel basically doesn't really communicate, doesn't really make a sound of what's happening in Palestine. So I think that there is this kind of uh, a, a one direction, you know, not non-direction in a way uh, between the sides. On the other hand, I do think that there is a, a huge part of Israelis that, are listening that are trying to communicate in different channels, not through the mainstream channels. Uh, I know that there are an, a lot of initiatives, both in terms of art, but also in other terms, uh, a breaking the silence um, organization. I don't know if you know them uh, that are doing different kind of uh, uh, tours. Um, and so I think that in terms of that, there is there are slight attempts of you know breaking the current rhythm that you know the the mainstream and sort of the mainstream media, but also the government is trying to silence. Um, 
I think that currently the situation in Israel is, is I mean, we have election actually in less than a week. I don't know if you know that. Um, I think that in the past decade since Netanyahu came into force, there has been a really transition into much more totalitarian uh, regimes. So I think that at the moment, it's extremely hard to to make a better communication with the Palestinians. And as you can see, there are no, not even like a conversation about any kind of peace. Um, but I think that social, ironically, some of the social media enabled people to have a better understanding of what is happening. So there is a bit of hope. I think that yeah, I don't I don't really know. Um, I guess part of yeah. my question, you know, it's funny. So my my kids have attended Jewish day school and actually I found between the like what we call where? the upper west. Uh, well, I mean, I can't say where my kids go to school on the uh, okay, public sorry. venue. Sorry, but, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I was just curious. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you after this show. After this show. Um, but they've gone to like very progressive Jewish day schools. But what's ironic even about that term is that I found like the New York based Ashkenazi, like upper west side Jewish people were like a lot more conservative, not just as it relates to Israel, but just like even around like gender norms than the Israeli parents that attended. And they were so much, so many of them like most vehement, not just like anti-Zionist, but working on projects of like dual language schools and like leading resistance within the Jewish community around the occupation. And also had, they were the ones whose daughters were wearing like combat boots and were like rejecting princess wear. So, I mean, I think that there is like a, I, I see while I've never been to Israel, as far as like the Israeli people that I've encountered in New York, I definitely feel like there are people who are thinking about um, resistance and about Palestine and like kind of refuse to be complicit. But I guess my question as it relates to social media is just how do you see that discourse kind of being mediated based off of like text versus sounds? Like how do you see those power dynamics, whether it is Facebook or Twitter? Or I'm actually not sure if you look at um, TikTok or some of those other, uh, I have started to be on TikTok. Um, I, uh, I am not sure what I think about it, (laughs) but, um, I'm not sure that I understand the question. Maybe you can ask it again. Oh, TikTok. I was just going to say I'm old. I mean, I try to look at my kids TikTok, but it's like, I feel like I miss my moment. Um, I don't think that we miss the moment. I think it requires, for me, it just requires much more attention because you can't just scroll in it uh, easily like I do on uh, Twitter. Uh, I think it just requires much more commitment for focusing and tuning into it, which is something that I don't always have. Um, And um, But see, I think that's us being old part, though. Because I like when I see my daughter on it, she's not like investing tons of energy and attention. I just yeah. think like for me, the Twitter, I understand how it works. I like know kind of what are the social norms, how to get people's attention, how to communicate, like what are the rhythms of it to use your your language. TikTok, I won. I feel like I can't dance like that. It just requires, <laughs> it feels like, if it also requires like commodifying your relationships. I don't know. I don't want to be like dancing in the kitchen for money. Like it just, like that's one aspect of it. But people seem, the younger kids seem to really know how to use that platform to like produce new things. But I, I'm not there. 
Um, I just feel like I don't want to be, I mean, one of the things that I always liked about radio and being a radio broadcaster and also on Twitter that I don't have to take pictures of myself or a video of myself. And that is for me very freeing and it feels less, uh, and also I don't have my, um, image on Twitter. I don't like my images at all in a lot of places, uh, you know, I'm all obviously against facial recognition. So for me, all of the platforms that rely on, uh, on images and videos are very problematic uh, because for me, it's a, it's a way of like self-surveillance. And, you know, so for me, it's a problem if, if I have to do that. But um, yeah, I guess we went into other directions. But Yeah, no, uh, I agree. I feel the same way about Clubhouse, you know? Like, I know every platform is surveilling you, but I feel yeah. like I never got into it. And do I really want to, like, start entering myself into the voice recognition database? But to scroll back, what I was saying yeah. is that um, in regards to Israel, like, I was thinking about this in relationship to Ethiopia, because the majority of the population is still, like, rural, right? And so urban, urban also is like can index to ethnicity, can index to political position. So certain views are more amplified on something like Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook because of who has access to the technology and like certain forms of communication. Like obviously like English is the lingua franca of power on a lot of these platforms. And so it just, there's, there's a way that that the power dynamics internally to the nation state then map on to the platforms, but that's also contested. Like I see people trying to figure it out and figure out who, who do you hashtag? What connections do you make? Or even um, like on Facebook, I've seen on pages where they just, they comment just to increase engagement. Like there's some sense that if you interact with this post more, it will elevate it in other people's feeds. So people are trying to figure it out, but I'm just curious how you see it in relationship to um, Israel and Palestine on these different mediums, like who's getting through, who's getting silenced, who's being declared as spam. Well, I can definitely say who's being amplified and several Israeli activists, uh, left-wing activists have been showing how Benjamin Netanyahu um, has, first of all, he's dominating all of the social media. He's the only a party leader who has TikTok. Um, but also, interestingly, um, all of his posts, both on Twitter and on Facebook, have fake bots that are amplifying his behavior. And he has been using different social media illegally. So every time before the election, he develops different kind of chat bots that are against Facebook's uh, terms and condition um, in order to get um, voters' personal data and then use it in order to persuade them to persuade their friends to pressure them and to vote them. So I think that, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is very similar to Trump. They both had the same sugar daddy, who's Sheldon Edelson, who recently died. Um, and in a way, their practices are very similar. They both, man both managed to master social media by, in a way, trying to always test the boundaries of what is you know, what is approved or not, right? Like basically Trump and Netanyahu have uh, sort of uh, done things that are against the platform terms and conditions, even, of, even if you're a politician. Both of them have blatantly lied. Both of them are, you know, inciting hate. For some reason, they can still do that. So, you know, for me, that is a, that is a very uh, important thing to emphasize that I think that when 
when you have all of these people and especially these leaders that creates a new president of, of, of you know, things that you can and cannot do and sort of who can do what. In Israel, I think the situation, so Netanyahu is doing all of these illegal things. Um, at the same time, there is a lot of pushback. And I don't know if you're following, but in the past several months, uh, there are demonstrations against Netanyahu in front of his house in Jerusalem every Saturday for, I think, almost a year. Um, so I think this, this combination of, you know, and there's a lot, interestingly, there's a lot of laws that they've been trying to pass so that they wouldn't do noise in the street. So, you know, they're taking over space and sound and time has been an interference in, you know, in Netanyahu's ruling. And I think that, you know, there is always resistance and you do see resistance. I think that it will, it Time will tell if it will be successful or not. But I think that we're seeing more resistance across the world. I'm also helping a group of Israelis who are going against uh, Facebook. They are going to have on the 14th of May a walkout from social media. They're called um, Operation Restart. And basically, they're hoping to create a global sort of awareness of all of the problems that social media are creating to destabilize democracy. Um, and these people are not, you know, tech people or something like that. These are like concerned citizens. And for me, when, you know, when these concerns are going from the tech industry to like everyday people, that's when we're starting to win, because that means that people are starting to wake up and to realize that this is not okay. And we're going to try to do whatever we can to change that. I do see some resistance in different pockets, but I think it would, it would still take time to do more sort of massive changes. No, thank you for sharing those insights. Maybe a good final question, as I was just thinking the title of your the last chapter in your book is Transducing the Deviants, which is it's funny, all the textbooks, like uh, my friend Julia Powell's and I, we joke around, like the last chapter is always the solution space chapter. And I thought transducing was an interesting choice of word, which I understand to be like converting. And, you know, I keep hearing, like, I feel, feel like the common thread throughout all of the chapters is like, we need to map out this architecture to identify where we have agency, like where are points of intervention and contestation so that we can kind of shift these power dynamics. So maybe in conclusion, if you could speak a little bit about like, where where is the hope and where do you see the opportunities to kind of take the resistance beyond, uh, beyond in, in rejection of like just an oversight board? So this is a really great question. And I think that hope is, is a very powerful thing. And, you know, the resistance has to come in several spaces, in my view. One of them would be to change the way that the adver digital advertising industry operates at the moment, which means that it operates without any kind of regulation whatsoever. And, you know, the same thing happened with uh, the tobacco industry and also the medical industry where they were sort of doing different kind of things that harmed people, but then people woke up and realized, actually, this is not okay and started to create different kind of rules. This doesn't happen overnight, uh, but it does happen. And we are seeing uh, different kind of people are trying to change that. Another thing for me would be to completely uh, revolutionize the way that law operates, because at the moment, you know, 
we have legal instruments, they take such a long time. And until something happens, you know, all of the all of the sort of the the technologies are already developed and they're already like set in place. So one of them is to change the industry. One of them is to change our legal instruments to operate faster, but also uh, to have technologies to have approval before they change things. So I'm definitely not in the stream of technological determinism. I don't think that everything has a right to exist. And I think that, uh, you know, different kind of tech uh, companies actually need to go through different kind of approval boards to ask us, actually, do we really need what you're going to develop? This is something that's extremely important to me. And I think that this can actually really revolutionize how technology is being developed today. Instead of saying, oh, let's move fast and break things, actually let's maybe ask somebody and see, well, actually, do does society actually need this? Um, that's another thing. And I think one of the one of the core thing is to actually give people more power to actually have a say um, in, you know, in in how things are being developed. At the moment, even with COVID, we see it quite quite vividly, I think, that things are being done uh, without really consulting with us. There's a lot of, you know, secret agreements. The UK has, has done a lot of secret agreements with a lot of tech companies. Uh, we don't really know what's happening. So I think that as a society, people need to have more power and we need to demand that from our governments um, and, you know, to strengthen our communities, which I think is something that actually COVID has done a bit. People are communicating inside their communities more, trying to see how they can help each other. Um, and I do see different kind of pockets across the world of people who are fed up. Um, I have a lot of hope with the younger generation. I think that feminism is not, is not a bad word anymore. I think that when I was growing up, you know, if you were a feminist, that was like a, a bad thing to be, or it was, it wasn't like a good, uh, I don't know. It was really, it was really scorned upon and, you know, you were really, Criticize. I think today, feminist feminism, the newer generation, is reclaiming that um, that uh, concept and that approach and that approach to life, and they're bringing new life into it, and they're saying enough is enough, and we're seeing that in a lot of realms. Um, so I think that if we if we look at all of these spheres and if we do these different kind of changes, then I think that we can start having different narratives, different kind of imagining different types of futures and things like that. Um, and I think one of the one of the important things of, of moving forward is to also acknowledge the wrongs that we have done in the past. And we're seeing that across the world, especially in the U.S. with the Black Lives Matter movement, but also with trying to decolonize a lot of the a lot of the infrastructures that we currently have. But in order to move forward, we need to sort of acknowledge of all of the, the harms that we have done in the past. And I think that this is a stepping stone into moving forward. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you want to shout out any, I know you've mentioned a lot of different projects and organizations that you're working with, um, but is there anything you want to shout out before we come to a close? 
So I just want to emphasize again, on the 14th of May, uh, there is a social media walkout. Uh, check out Operation Restart online. Um, and uh, this is a 24 hour. So that's the birthday of Mark Zuckerberg, but also the day before WhatsApp goes into their new terms and conditions. Uh, it's 24 hours walkout of social media and awareness across the, glo the globe. And uh, I also want to thank you for this amazing conversation and really, really great questions that uh, helped me think about my topics and my research better. And uh, yeah, that's it, I think. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate it, especially when we make it happen across time zones. So dope. Yes. Uh, this is the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast listening website is. Um, check out our Patreon, which is in the show notes. And definitely check out Eleanor Carmi's book, Media Distortions, which will, is open access and will be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much, y'all. Thank you.